Hi, I'm Jake Hanrahan from Popular Front, and you're listening to the Just Checking In podcast. Guys, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Events, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. We are up to episode 97 now. I can't believe it's three episodes away from episode 100. So thank you all for tuning in, for staying with me, for supporting the pod. I honestly cannot thank you enough. For the pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. I love talking to male artists on the Just Checking In pod. And in this week's episode, I'm chatting to a designer, illustrator and fellow Huddersfield town fan. I know, who could have thought it? His name is Peter O'Toole. Pete is a freelance illustrator who has worked with clients including Adidas, Mundial Magazine, Nike, Scott's Menswear, The Telegraph, Variety, Men's Health USA and, naturally, Huddersfield Town Football Club. In this episode, we discuss how Pete became an illustrator and designer, class in the industry, and succeeding as an artist from a working class background. We also discuss managing and overcoming self-doubt, comparison culture, and the precarious nature of being a freelancer too. We also discuss burnout when it comes to Pete's mental health journey, Pete's experience of therapy and the stigma he felt in accessing it, managing your physical and mental health in tandem with one another, and the early midlife crisis he had just before the first COVID-19 lockdown. So this is how my conversation with Pete O'Toole went. Peter O'Toole, welcome to the Just Checking In Pod, mate. Thank you so much for coming on. I've had a few town fans on, as you can probably imagine, over the years that I've done this. So it's great to have another one on. I bet this feels a little bit different to when you used to sit behind me in the Premier League seasons and just listen to me and my dad shouting at town players. So how are you, how are you mate? How does that feel? <laughs> Good morning, Freddie. Yes, I think you'll be a bit less animated today. Well, uh, <laughs> we'll I, see. <laughs> we, we, we will see, but you, you did used to get pretty loud and uh, violent. Shall we say in the stands? Whoa, violent! That's ah, oh, verbally slandering me on this pod. No, I'm only joking. I'm only joking. <laughs> you and your dad made me laugh though consistently. Some of the stuff you used to come out with, and then I found out later that you used to travel up from London for every game, which still do. Kind of respect that, to mm. be honest. As I've gotten older, I've started calming my dad down more. Whereas yeah. it used to be him calming me down when I was younger. You, to so be now honest, it's me both calming as bad down. as each other, I think. <laughs> I think we just the energy just vibes off each other, and then when it gets yeah. a bit too far, I've always got to tell my dad to like just calm down a bit. I think he was winding up his um, "You're making it up" for when the fourth official announces the the four minutes yeah. of added time. For to about to two be honest, yeah, to be honest, Studdersfield Town doesn't do you any favors. It's almost like they're trying to wind you up most and, of the time. And ironically, since moving to different parts of the ground, I think I've now realised just how many town fans love a moan more than us. So I think you got away with it a little bit, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we weren't miserable. We were animated, but at least we weren't miserable. No, you weren't miserable. No, just <laughs> terribly violent. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm not going to edit these out, but I'm going to say he is joking for the purpose of this podcast, I am, guys. I, am, okay. I, am. I love chatting with male artists, mate, for so many reasons. And the breadth of work that you've done is really commendable. So without further ado and people getting bored of town chat, shall we just get started? Let's start the pod by talking about your design journey, mate. So first of all, tell me how you got into drawing, illustrating, and when you, I guess, discovered you had this talent and developed it. I was always drawing from being young. My mum always used to draw with us. And then I didn't really take it seriously until maybe year 10 at high school where you had to kind of choose your subjects. I just remember being sat in art class once and I just thought, do you know what, if I actually try, I can actually do some good stuff. I was doing something with clay at the time and there was a light bulb that just went off in my head. From that moment on then, I kind of tried harder. (laughs) I was really into graffiti art at the time, so I just kind of poured all my focuses into that, like on the internet all the time looking at it. I wanted to be a graffiti artist, but I was never any good, so I could just admire it more than anything. Didn't want the criminal record either, I imagine. Yeah, that's kind of, that was pretty off-putting, to be honest. I was into, like, I still am a massive fan of hip-hop, so mm. it all kind of went hand-in-hand hand with that. And graffiti really gave me a focus at that age when I was about 14, and I think kids need a focus. So I was lucky enough to get that, and it just kind of went from there then. Ended up going to a college to do art, local college, and... I was telling someone this morning, actually, they were asking about it and they made, the teachers made you buy like a chocolate bar from the vending machine and kind of open it just halfway, put it on a white piece of paper and draw that for six weeks. Lord. So every at the end of every lesson, you have to put that back in your drawer in the same position and then bring that's it back a, that's out. That's a test of free will and resilience, isn't it? Not to eat the chocolate bar. Well, yeah. And also it made me think, what the hell am I doing here? This is not <laughs> what I signed up for. I want to be doing record covers and designing mm. skateboards and stuff like that. I don't want to be drawing a line bar for six weeks. Yeah. Tony so, Pro Skater, I imagine you were probably playing as well. Oh, yeah, it was, it was that era, mate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A bit of a sidetrack. I've just bought the reissue version of that and I was playing that. Oh, really? Month. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, yeah. But anyway, that's so nostalgic. nostalgia. I quit that after three months and I went to art college, which I should have done to start with, to be honest. And then when you're at art college, two years there, national diploma, and it was great because it was the complete opposite. Every lesson was a different class. So you'd be developing your own photos, you'd be screen printing, you'd be doing graphic design, fashion illustration, life drawing, ceramics, a bit of everything. And, and the whole point of that was, so you got a taste of every kind of subject. And then mm. when you went to uni, you could specialize in a subject. So if you wanted to do ceramics, you might be going to a different type of university that specializes in ceramics rather than if yeah. you want to do graphic design, you might go somewhere else for graphic design. Yeah. Like sort of pro footballers having to play every position when they're kids. And yeah. then when they go to the pro league, if their coach says to them, well, you've been playing striker, but we've got, I want you to play left back. They can do that. Sort of similar, I guess. Sort of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, you just get a taste of it. And you also never been exposed to this stuff before. I've never had to go in a dark room and develop my own photos. And it, it's interesting. And you're with a lot of different teachers for different subjects and you know, like life drawing, for instance, two hours life drawing. So basically there's a naked, naked man people. or a naked woman <laughs> stood in front of you. And you're like, you've got to look at them and draw them. And it's great because it's like, right, I want you to draw this in pastel and you've got 30 seconds to do it. You lose all your inhibitions and you're like, it's not about whether it's right or wrong anymore. A lot of people, when they put a pencil to paper, they can't even do a line without rubbing it out and thinking too much yeah. about it. But the life drawing thing was a really good exercise in teaching you how to just 
lose it. And then it's like, well, the next one, it might be spend half an hour doing this in pencil. So you still get like the detail, but when they say like do it in 30 seconds, you've got to do it and you can't think about, oh, this line's wrong. You've got to do it quick and use some expression in it. Like best times educational wise, like I look back on them times as definitely the best times in my whole education. It was just so much fun. It was free and easy. And then when you go to uni, it's a bit more serious. Then you, you, I specialised in illustration. And to be honest, they're a bit weird with uni because I think my college had like a link with Bradford University. They were always egging you to go to Bradford University. And I went to a few others. I went to like Loughborough, which was amazing. But I ended up just kind of going with flow and going to Bradford. I didn't move to Bradford. I, I just drove every day. So I didn't really get the proper uni experience. Do you regret that? Mm, not really, no, not in the long run. If I knew what I know now, I wouldn't have even gone to uni to start with. I'd have just oh, really? started. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I loved uni. There's some great teachers there. But I think I went when it was kind of a transition. Mm. Like the head of the course was kind of changing and he wasn't there a lot. So we didn't really get that attention. And then in the first year, we was in this amazing old building. And then the kind of campus moved a bit. So we ended up moving into this pretty bland studio. And it just wasn't what I expected it to be. I expected, right, when you get to university, I expected everyone to be on the same level as you. I get how some people at high school, they'll choose art because it's easy. Or, mm, like, or a DOS. Come as easy. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's a DOS. When you get to college, it's a bit different. You can still kind of DOS it to an extent. But in my head, when you went to uni, it's like, serious, right, now yeah, we separate yeah. the wheat from the chaff. It's like, everyone's going to be like me. And then there was me and my mate, Ollie Smith, and a couple of others we were the only ones there. No one else turned up half the time, only when they needed to be there for lectures or whatever. But it was kind of disheartening a bit. It was disheartening in one way, but in another way, it made me think, well, you know, we're, we're on top of have. the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is the, we've got the attitude that you need, I think. And obviously I didn't know at that time because I hadn't done anything. But in my head, I kind of knew that it was the right attitude to take to kind of be successful. And what I also found really strange, except for Ollie Smith and myself, we were the only ones who did drawing in our spare time. I'd go to uni all day or whatever, or college, I'd be drawing, and then I'd be drawing all night as well. And the other guys, they never did that. That really freaked me out, to be honest, because I thought, how? Do you it's think that's the reason why you're doing it now? Maybe, maybe it's that same attitude. And mm. I don't know where that attitude comes from. I, I, to be honest, I just think if you're passionate about something, you want to do it all the time anyway. I mean, we'll probably talk about it later, but for me, I never got into being an illustrator to make money because I never thought you could make any money being an illustrator. It's like mental health as well, mate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it was like, well, I'll do it if I can pay the bills and that's it. I'll be happy doing it because I'd rather do what I want to do than some of the other jobs that I had to do without putting the other jobs that I did down, the normal jobs, as everyone calls them, proper jobs. Yeah. Like working at Morrison's or working on building sites or in offices. I got some from every one of them jobs that kind of served me later in my own business, whether it's dealing with the public, dealing with money, chasing invoices. I took some from every single one of them jobs, but I never wanted to do them jobs forever. You know, I did them because I was a student. There was also graphic design on our course as well. And with graphic design, it's a bit different because you can go and work in someone else's studio. You could learn almost as an apprentice in a studio, whereas with an illustrator, you just got to do it yourself. You've got to take the leap of faith and uh, do it and it works or it don't. You sink or you swim, basically, which is scary when you're 22 years old. And when I left uni, I basically I stayed living at my mum's when I was at uni. And then when I finished uni, I graduated, I moved in 
with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and she was almost like, well, I, I didn't have a job, so I needed to pay rent. So I, t- I took any job and I was picking weeds out of frozen gravel at eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and uh, there were a guy I was working with who was an absolute Egypt trying to get me sacked all the time. I just thought, I don't need this. This guy's like 50 years old, proper trying to get me sacked, like for little, little stuff. And I just thought, I don't need to go to work every day to do this. I've got a degree. I think I've got skills. And I just thought, if I'm doing what I want to do eight hours a day, rather than picking weeds out of gravel, then surely I'll, I'll get somewhere. And eventually I took the leap and did that. Before that, actually, I actually applied to do a, a master's at Edinburgh University and I got accepted. And then I just had a, a vision. I thought, you know, what? I've been in education so long. I've been broke for so long. I want to try and make some money now. And I remember telling my parents, I don't think anyone in my family had done a master's before that. And trying to explain to your parents that like doing a master's in art is not like doing a master's in chemistry. <laughs> no one's ever going to ask you about it, unless I guess you want it to be a lecturer later on mm. and maybe it serves some purpose, but that's not on my agenda. So trying to tell them and kind of convince them that, sort of, you know, I want to go out and make some money. And I remember saying to them, look, I'm a, it might be 40 before I end up making any money, but this is what I want to do. And I went off and did that. And luckily for me, I got some pretty big jobs straight off the bat and, you know, just kind of built up, I built up my portfolio working for local people and then working for people out and about more like London based and then globally and just kind of kept the momentum up. But I always, every time I had an opportunity, I'd make sure I made the most of it, whether I sleep on the floor in the studio, work all hours of the day to to get it sorted. I wasn't going to miss an opportunity because I had the fear. If you mess up on a job, especially so early in your career, this client might never come back. So my mentality was just thoroughly driven to the point where I was probably neglecting other parts of my life just to get to where I wanted to be yeah. in the illustration world, which again, I'm sure we'll talk about as we go on. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a little bit, mate. Just going back to, I guess, drawing itself before we talk about class and you've mentioned it a little bit already but what effect does drawing have on your mental health and how do you get into the mindset to draw and be creative i think historically on my mental health it's just a place to zone out i remember many many times where i'd put a pen to paper and four hours have gone past i'm just listening to music and it's almost like i, I can't remember doing it it's like a <laughs> Like hypnosis almost, yeah, like a trance-like state, yeah. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I mean, that's not what it's like pretty much day-to-day when you've got pressure on you for deadlines and stuff. Mm. But, you know, when you're doing it in your free time, like back in the day, it was almost like, say therapy, but kind of like zoning out and meditation more than therapy, I think. So many hours in my head have been lost just like, I just look at the clock and it's two o'clock in the morning and I've been drawing for five hours and I haven't even (laughs) noticed it go and I'm just listening to music and I'm in, in the zone. Day to day now, it's more of a, a strategy. It's more of a agenda. It's like, right, you go to work. You already know what you're going to be doing. It's more mechanical. Yeah. More mechanical, yeah. yeah. I'm going to be doing that for three hours. Then this other dude wants this thing doing. That needs doing by tomorrow. Everything is highly planned. But it, sometimes you do, like, sometimes you still do get, to an extent, something that the zoning out that I used to get. It's just a bit different. It's hard because you're working on so many stuff and concentrating on so many different areas in one day that 
the only time I really get to do that is if I've got some drawing to do, I'll be drawing on my iPad and then I might just put a film on Netflix or something and I can concentrate. Even if I'm not really watching the film, I, I like I concentrate for four hours while I'm drawing and then it, it gives me a similar feeling to what it used to be like. But I must admit, recently, it's sometimes like my concentration has just been going and it's really hard to kind of nail that down and, and why. Why is it happening? But then if I put a film on or I listen to a, like a really interesting podcast, then I can just kind of focus then. But that's kind of what it does for me. It relaxes you for sure. And I do miss it. Like if, I, if I've been on holiday, like I was in Berlin for a few days last week and then I had a meeting in Liverpool all day Monday. So I didn't work for like seven days or something like that. And you miss it. You yeah, get I miss it. It's like me with a pod. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you get the urge to do it, which is... It's like, oh, I'm weird. bored. Let me send eight invitations out and see which ones come back and then write a running order. And then, like, editing I've actually found to be quite meditative as well in some in some respects. Not all the time, especially when it's yeah. a tricky edit. But when it's a nice edit, I'm just going through it. Time just goes really quickly, yeah. Well, yeah, that's it. I mean, if it's tricky or if it's more complicated... Remember yesterday I was doing some posters and obviously all the information has to go on the posters. It's all all festivals and stuff coming back now. So I've got a client that does loads of festivals. So I'm having to put all these, this info on. And then I had to just turn the music off because I couldn't concentrate. I'm like, I I need to focus. Yeah, That's like the tricky side of it. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I don't want to listen to music that's got lyrics in it. I just want to listen to classical music or instrumental music. It's not distracting me. Exactly. Yeah. You know I mean? yeah. So it, every day you're in a different mindset. Some days you can turn up and you just smash everything. Some days you turn up and you go home after eight, nine hours and you, you've done 15 minutes solid work all day. You're <laughs> procrastinating. <laughs> but there's a lot going on in life, isn't there? I've got kids, I've got bills to pay and I never had any of that when I was younger. I could kind of freely go in. They want any pressure. I want to make no money, but they want any <laughs> pressure either. So it's kind of swings and roundabouts. I want to talk about class now because you come from a working class family, Pete. Your mum worked in a chemical plant and your dad was a labourer. How did that affect the way you created the ambition to be an artist when you weren't surrounded by immediate role models or influences or, most importantly, connections and people who could connect you? Yeah, it was a bit weird it wasn't weird like because I didn't know any better up until I was probably about 14 I didn't even know what illustration was as a as a job I just thought as an illustrator you do them like political cartoons and newspapers and stuff like that you know I never thought I'll make comics you didn't put two and two together with like Mm. everything can be designed every road sign you see someone's designed that every box you see someone's designed that you know you go out down a supermarket you can see loads and loads of designs you can do t-shirts especially now like web wasn't a as big thing back then when i was younger than it is now but web animation there's so much stuff you can do book covers they're always pushing you at uni like to do greetings cards i'll work for a greetings cards company i'll do book covers and that's not the stuff i wanted to do so i kind of didn't drove... end up working for dean hoyle did you at the car factory and <laughs> No, no, no. For the no, listeners, no. he used to own Huddersfield Towns. So that's another Huddersfield Town joke. Yeah, yeah. Never worked for Dean Hoyle, thankfully. <laughs> Probably still owing money now. <laughs> <laughs> so to go back to your question, it was hard in a way because like, I didn't have, I ain't got any older brothers. So, and even if I did, they probably wouldn't do what, this kind of job because it's kind of rare. I wouldn't say it's as rare to be a graphic designer, but there's not many illustrators in Huddersfield. There's not many who would, 
you know, doing things, I, I don't think. I in don't most feel... people's local areas as well, I would say, yeah, more generally. Unless you find a... a hub of, you know, or a community or like, you know, you move to London and there's an area which is full of artists, but most yeah, people I don't think would know a lot. Yeah. Cities are a bit different, yeah, definitely. But around here, I didn't know anyone who'd done it before. So I was kind of just figuring it out as I went along. Obviously, my parents, they did completely different jobs. And I, for a while, I just thought I'll end up being a labourer like my dad. And then I went on a building site and I thought, yeah, that is absolutely backbreaking work. I'm not doing that. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was hard, but I just did a lot of research and I was so passionate about it that there was nothing that was going to stop me. I had a goal and I would run through anyone to get to that goal, regardless of how long it took me. So you hear bits and bats like, you know, you might bump into someone or someone's cousin might know someone who does it and they might send you an email and you do get a bit of help but the older you get and the more research you do but generally it was just an absolute shot in the dark how I ended up doing what I did and to be honest even if you got to doing it and figuring out what is illustration it's not to say you're going to be successful it's not to say you're going to get any clients so just figuring out what the job is was half the battle and then it's like uphill from there you know what I mean (laughs) then the work goes into like right now I figured out what this job is and that it is an actual job. How do I get work and how do I make it into a viable business? And Build a reputation and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 When I started, I didn't even think about the business side. I was just happy to be doing it. <laughs> uh, and it's only as the years have gone on that I've kind of understood things like the importance of return business and things like that and going out and meeting people keeping up relations and stuff for the first three years I just stayed in my studio I didn't go anywhere I was just like a nomad I didn't want to go anywhere I think it was a confidence thing as well but as soon as I started going out and meeting people I got so much more work and you get so much better connections because you're meeting people in real life and you know you make an effort exactly. so in Berlin last week I met up with some friends clients and they know that you make the effort you've made the effort to go to Berlin yeah maybe I didn't just go to Berlin for that. Maybe I just went to get out of this mad country and get <laughs> leathered for a few days. But I also, you know, caught up with some clients and stuff and and they notice and I, I you know, I take note of people, I've got a lot of German friends who've come over to Man I meet them in Manchester or whatever. And it's a big effort. It's a it's a lot easier to email and it's a lot easier to just ring someone. But when you're actually making the effort to go and see someone it goes much further and you create real friendships rather than just like kind of false. Oh yeah. You're my mate, but you're my client kind of thing. Like I've got some really good mates who started out being clients now in all countries. And mm. it's only cause I've gone out and, and you continue the relationship and go and see them. And for a long time, I didn't understand that because I'd never done it. I just thought, right, I'm just going to keep my head down, stay in my studio, not go out and meet people, which is not really healthy in itself. And it's only over the years that you kind of learn that these things are valuable, especially because being a freelance illustrator is quite a lonely job in some respects as well. Can we talk about briefly technology? Because you've mentioned it a little bit before and how the internet and social media has really helped a lot of designers and illustrators. I'm sure it has helped you, mate. I feel like this democratisation has helped a lot of working class illustrators and designers because you can build your reputation you don't have to rely on someone's cousin or your dad kind of connecting you because you can build that reputation on social media however similar to the podcast world where you know the great thing about podcasts is anyone can do it but 
some of the bad things about podcasting is, is that everyone is doing it. Mm-hmm. Is there an oversaturation in design now? And what effect does that have on, you know, an individual like yourself and the collective? Do you have to work harder to stand out? Just going to the original point about social media, it, it used to be great. It used to be really good. Uh, Facebook was phenomenal. When I first started, I got so much work through Facebook and then later Instagram that I don't even know if my business would have survived without that work, to be honest. And also I got seen on there by bigger clients like, for instance, Adidas found me on Instagram and ended up working for them. And then obviously you build from there. All you need is one break, really. But yeah, I always thought that, yeah, Photoshop's accessible, Illustrator's accessible to anyone now. So everyone can essentially be a designer. I don't think there's an oversaturation. No, I think there's a lot of crap out there, but I think there's always been a lot of crap out there. It's all subjective and the cream rises, doesn't it? So it doesn't concern me really. Concerns me sometimes when people are ripping me off and copying my style, which does happen. But again, you've got to have the confidence in yourself. It's like they're chasing you out there. You're the lion there, the sheep. Like they can only do their next piece based on your next piece. So you're always going to be one step ahead. Imitation is the best form of flattery. Is that the saying? It is. I could say something else that rhymes with flattery and it begins with <laughs> T and W. You can say it on this pod, mate. Don't worry. You can imitation say it is the greatest form of twattery yeah. is my preferred phrase. But going back, oversaturation I don't think so. I think it's great to see loads of people doing stuff. And I think it's, like I say, art is therapy in some respects as well. So not everyone's going to make it. And some people just do it for fun. And now that the iPad and the Apple Pencil are kind of really accessible to everyone, you see so many people who wouldn't have picked up a pencil before, whether it's to kind of challenge me and my market, it doesn't really matter. Or if it's just to draw and have a bit of fun. Yeah. And they might not realize that drawing really, really helps kind of settle you down and get yourself out of your head sometimes. Mm. So I think it's great. Like I don't see the oversaturation as competition really because I don't really care about what other people do. I only care about what I do. I'm only in competition with myself really. As long as I can kind of get a better job, I'll do better than on a job than I did like last week or something. I only really want to improve myself. I think one thing I learned early is never compare yourself to other people. And any students that ask me like how I done it, I'll always say, it don't matter. I could tell you exactly how I did it and you could do the exact same steps, but you would not end up where I am. You would end up where you're supposed to be. And no one's journey is the same. Uh, You've got to kind of blaze your own trail sometimes. Mm. I can kind of give you pointers on what to do and what not to do, but you've still got to do it yourself. I think some people, especially like more naive, maybe fresh, younger illustrators might see oversaturation as a bit daunting. They might see it as like a competition or a challenge. And it's like, it's not like that. Just focus on yourself. Don't compare yourself to other people, which is easier said than done. Yeah, Everyone gets it. Like I say, one day you wake up at one side of bed and the world's against you. Tomorrow you might wake up on one side of bed and you've just done 20 jobs in a day, you know. So it all depends on your mindset on that particular day Mm. and what's going on in your your life. But yeah, I'd always say don't compare yourself to others because it doesn't help anyone. I remember when I first started, I was always like looking at people who are like I went to uni with who maybe might have been a few years above me, looking at their client lists. And I just got out of uni, I had no clients. I did be working for like some amazing, amazing clients and I, just kind of put me down a bit. It's like, how am I ever going to end up like that? You know, I want a client list. (laughs) 
you know, I've only got like local people. I want New Yorker. I want Adidas. I want Nike, whatever. But that all comes with time. If you put the time in, all that comes automatically. Same with the money, same with everything else. If you're doing it to make money, which I do think there is a bad thing, like I think everyone thinks now that they can maybe be an entrepreneur. I hate that word, but I don't trust anyone who calls themselves an entrepreneur. (laughs) As soon as someone says, I'm an entrepreneur. Red flag. Red flag for (laughs) me, I'm like, block. I'm not interested. So there are people who kind of, getting it just purely to make money. And I don't think it'll last, I think, to make proper money. Except for, you know, it's obviously exceptions to the rule. There'll always be random people who do end up just making crazy amounts of money on stuff. But I think generally, if you want to make money, you've got to be passionate about it. You've got to have a passion for it. It's the same with anything. I can see straight through someone who is just doing it for the money because they're only asking about, like, how much money do you make? How much did you get for that? How much did you get for this? It doesn't matter how much money you get. Well, it does, as long as you pay your bills. But, you know, like, that's not the main focus. The main focus is you're doing it because you love it. And Speaking think... about comparison culture and not caring about what other people think, how does social media play into feedback then and how you deal with feedback? Do you care when you get negative feedback or can you emotionally detach from it? And how do you do with positive feedback as well, sorry? Well, everyone loves positive feedback. (laughs) I think it can be quite addictive, to be honest. I don't know. I think negative feedback, to be honest, I don't get that much. And it depends what kind of negative feedback it is. If it's negative feedback on a piece of work, is it constructive or is it just someone trying to get a raise out of you? Or a rise out of you? If it's someone trying to get a rise, I won't even respond. I won't even acknowledge it's there. If it's like some idiots put some daft racist post on i'll just delete the post and block them i just like put them in the bin straight away if it's a genuine question about a piece or like what does this represent or this might not come across as you might think it does then you know i'll just go back and forth with people positive feedbacks as i said great but i think it can be addictive and i think then when you get positive feedback and you start getting loads of followers and stuff you're almost under pressure to kind of keep posting and it almost you can get to the point where you're just working to post on instagram you're not just Mm. working normally and posting the best bits on instagram because you want a bit of consistency there but i see people who deal with negative feedback differently like they won't say anything they'll get drunk and then they'll post some comment back and i don't think that looks good on a business or as a person either and i'd always i'm not saying just ignore stuff because no, I am. I am yeah, saying just yeah, we should because it's tr- it's trolling, isn't it? It's yeah. like you've got to think these people would never say this to to you in real life, and if they did, they deserve a slap if you give them one. But they, it's some false security. They're projecting, aren't they? Yeah, they're projecting. Exactly. Yeah. And someone left some the other day. I'd, I'd post a picture of Sorba Thomas that I'd done on Instagram. Sorba uh, Thomas Twitter. is a Huddersfield Town player. For the listeners who don't know, he plays yeah. wing back slash winger, and he's been playing quite well. You'll know him soon if you don't know him already. Trust me, he's a good player. So I'd done like a wallpaper of him, a free wallpaper. I'd do him now and again when I got a bit of spare time and I just put it on Twitter. And some guy, they were all like decent comments and some guy put, it's just uh, shit HTFC edits. And I'm like, what's HTFC edits? And then I, I looked at this Twitter account. It's HTFC edits. It was basically some dude does some pretty cool stuff with photos. Mine was all like illustrated and stuff. So I'm like, there's nothing like HDFC <laughs> edits. Anyway, I looked at this guy's profile and he'd done two posts. He had no followers 
and another post was trying to wind someone else up and I'm like, ah, see what this guy is. Because at first I thought, this is HTFC edits. He's like made another account and he's pretending he's not HTFC edits and like dissing my piece. And I thought, you're overthinking it. It's just some idiot. Just ignore it. But I must admit, I might have got 10 positive comments and that's the one. That you're focusing on, yeah. That annoyed me. But you just, again, throw it in the bin. I don't care. Can we talk about industry issues now? We've spoken about it a little bit already, but, you know, pressure and work-life balance. So freelance work is obviously quite precarious by its nature, Pete. And you might have four to five projects to finish in a single week, or you might go a few weeks without any work. So how do you manage that when it comes to your mental health and I guess also the build-up of pressure that comes with those big deadlines. Yeah, it's it's an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> well, it, it, I think just the nature of the job. I don't think it's for everybody, definitely. And sometimes I don't think it's for me, to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, back in the day when I first started, it was different because I didn't have as much pressure as I do now. Now I've got kids, got mortgage, bills to pay, everything else. So the pressure's on, really. It's sometimes hard to manage and yeah this this whole thing of one week you get paid the next week well the next three weeks you might not get paid and trying to manage that and there's no income coming in from anywhere else so it's really like when it first started it was really just hit and miss just trying to figure it all out then like I said earlier you talk about return clients once I've got a few of them I could kind of gauge like although there's no pattern you can kind of get a pattern of mm. like when work's going to come in, right? When this bit is quite, you can you can hit up this other client that you've been meaning to work with for a while who said they've got a project coming up in a few months and you just kind of learn to manage it like that. And the other thing is, it's like each client has different payment terms. So Adidas used to be that you'd do a job. It might take you a month to do a job and then you'd invoice and then you'd have to wait 90 days to get paid. So you've got to think about this as well. Mm. I mean, it's different now. People don't really realise that, do they? That reality of sort no, of no, financial they, side, yeah. I mean, thank God to Adidas, they've changed it a bit. I did a job for them the other week. I got paid within about a week for that. So it's definitely changed since I first started working with them. But then I've got clients who are more mate-mate clients who I work with a lot, like return clients. And they'll pay, sometimes it seems like they've paid before I've sent the invoice. Like I'll, <laughs> I'll send the invoice and it's like paid. I'm like, wow, nice one. That really helps. That's nice, isn't it? That's, that's, really, that's really nice, nice yeah. yeah. And um, if I'm ever owing money to people, like sometimes I'll hire people to work on projects with me. I'll try pay them as soon as get the invoice. And yeah, so I got in my house a few years ago and tradesmen here, there and everywhere. And as soon as the invoice met, I paid them because that's how I want to be treated, you know. Mm. I understand that people like Adidas aren't going to, they basically have to pay so many suppliers that they just keep money in banks mm. and gain interest on it. And it's more strategy yeah i think that's a yorkshire attitude to money as well i'm very much like in my life i i hate owing people money i hate owing people money money because you feel like a bad person but you also feel like they have a power over you in some weird way i don't know maybe that's where i'm looking at it but i always pay my debts always pay people on time because i just hate owing people money just really i do if i can't afford it i won't buy it basically and yeah you're right i think i just think it's a it's manners so as well. Is it I how you brought yeah. up? It's, yes, manners. You brought up it's manners. I think it, yeah. it might be manners. Not that I expect every client uh, I have to pay me as soon as I send the invoice. And, you know, it's not like that. That's not how it works. But I do very much appreciate the guys who do pay me. And that kind of helps because then if you are waiting 30 days for an invoice, it just keeps you going a bit, yeah. you know? 
So although it's such a frantic kind of lifestyle being a freelancer, I've been doing it for maybe 11, 12 years now, solely freelance. And there are patterns. There are definitely patterns that kind of emerge as mm. unrealistic as you think it would be to see patterns in this kind of work. Yeah. I mean, I have returned clients, but there's only one client who's giving me work almost every day in a month, you know, and it might just be like half an hour here, an hour there, three hours there. There's only like one client and that's only happened in the last month or so. And that's ever, you know, like I've never had a client where I'm having to do something like monthly for them. So it's just kind of spinning plates a lot of the time. And then, yeah. And the other thing is, it's like when I used to have a quiet period, you just used to be shitting yourself. You'd be like, oh God, I'm never going to get another job. And you'd be panicking then. Well, that's self-doubt and that's something you also wanted to talk about so how is self-doubt it is yeah yeah, yeah. It's, but then as you get older and older you realize right you need to when you have a week quiet you need to have the confidence to know that in two weeks it you're won't gonna be. wish you yeah. were quiet again <laughs> and you need to chill out in that week but sort of again reset, it depends guess, on yeah, your yeah. on your mindset because mm. sometimes i know that i know that you know I'm, I'm experienced in what i do and i've seen a lot of stuff and even now, if I'm not in the right mindset and I have a quiet week, sometimes I'll panic and it doesn't do you any good at all because then you look desperate and then it's almost like you're kind of blocking work from coming to you when you're looking desperate, you know? Yeah. So it's really hard to manage. Self-doubt, obviously, imposter syndrome, self-doubt, it all comes into play. I think everyone gets that. I don't care if you're Cristiano Ronaldo, he'll have days where he gets self-doubt. It's just how it is no one can be thoroughly confident all the time sometimes you might do a piece of work and you might get knocked back on it and they don't like the client don't like it and a lot of some people especially if they're just starting out that might that might knock them for six and they might just get into a bit of a lull and they might not even be able to finish that job i've been doing a job this week i think we're on a third draft now because it just hasn't been right and after this podcast i'm going to crack on and do some more on it but we're getting there. I trust the process. I've done it before, you know, but when they say we're not feeling it, I'm not like, I'm not going all defensive and like, well, whatever. Yeah, I want to solve, yeah, yeah, solve the problem. So like, right, yeah. what, what are you not feeling about it? And then we have a call and it's like, right, I get it now. We'll go down this different route. And maybe what I did is what they asked for, but the outcome isn't as good as what they thought it might be or it doesn't work for what they're wanting. Mm. Then we just go down a different route. And, you know, we're on the third route now this week and in my head it's like it's looking a lot better it's still not right and they know it's not right as well and we just need to kind of declutter it a bit but I'm thinking like I know what I've got to do now and I'm hoping at the end of today we'll be a lot closer to than where we were on Thursday but you know just because someone says they don't like it or it's not right that could easily knock someone if they're in the wrong mood and they're not secure, yeah. And 100%. they're not secure, yeah, yeah. And sometimes it, it might knock you. Sometimes you just have to leave it for a day and come back with a fresh pair of eyes because you're looking at the same thing for 10 hours sometimes. Mm. And sometimes, my business partner Adam says this all the time, it's like, I was working on this logo today. I was just staring at the screen. I couldn't think of anything. So I just left it, left it for a few hours, came back in the morning, and then I'd solved it within half an hour. And sometimes you just you can't see the forest for the trees. You know when you're typing sometimes and you look at a word like van, and it's like, is, is that spelled right? Is that how you spell that? It stops becoming and a word if you say it's, it. And it's long, like, yeah. your head just goes, Bleh. So it's sometimes it's like that with design as well. And yeah, self-confidence, 
you definitely need it in this game, but I think a lot of kids, it lets it affect them. But what I always say to students and stuff is, with illustration, you've got to be in the right place at the right time. I could do a whole portfolio of jobs that I've got that have fallen through, but you don't you don't focus on them. You just focus on the jobs that you did get, and then mm, people you know, don't see those either. Job. You know, there's so many jobs that I I wouldn't have got like if I wasn't f- available on that specific day, and it's not because people don't want me to do it; it's because I wasn't available on that specific day. You know, it's definitely right place, right time. A bit of luck. I don't really believe in luck. I'm a firm believer. I don't, I don't believe in talent, to be honest. Luck and talent, I think, are just kind of words. They're almost offensive because talent is someone who's worked for years and years and years and years to get to where they are. And then someone kind of comes and says, oh, you're talented. And it's almost like the kind of just palming it offers. Oh, you were given that gift. You know, you know, you didn't work for that gift. I mean, I appreciate it when people say it. But look as well, I think you make your own look. Like you've got to be available. You've got to kind of be dedicating yourself to your craft. And yeah, maybe there are like little bits of luck and talent. Not everyone is inclined to draw. But I guarantee you, if you put as much hours into drawing that I did, you'd be a damn sight better than what you are now. Mm. You know what I mean? A lot of people, they never think they can do it. And to be honest, they might not want to do it. But I think anyone can draw. Some people might have to put a few more hours in than others, don't get me wrong. But yeah, I think talent's a cop-out, to be honest. Okay. Can we briefly talk about some of your key pieces of work? So can you tell me about the work you did for Clark's Originals and why that means a lot to you? And then obviously the one which a lot of town fans will know, which is the work you did with the club on the Wagner Revolution. Wagner Revolution, sorry, my dad will kill me if he listens to that. (laughs) I call him Wagner. (laughs) The Clarks stuff, I've done a few jobs for Clarks, yeah. I think what I'd done, I did a print basically just of loads of Clarks shoes, just as a personal project, really. And they were just like rows, rows. I've done a similar one for Adidas as well. And with the Adidas one, I actually got hired by Adidas off the back of that. So I thought, well, I'll do the same for Clarks and see if Clarks will hire me. And funnily enough, they did. (laughs) (laughs) So I ended up, I did some T-shirts for them, I think. It's weird because Clarks don't do T-shirts. They obviously make shoes. They have done bits of clothing in the past, but only promo stuff, not like selling T-shirts mm. in shops and stuff. And I did some desert boot T-shirts that were printed live at a Clark's event at Docks in London. Is it Tobacco, tobacco Docks, Docks. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was some event there or something like that. I never even got one myself, but my mate uh, Garky, he was working at this screen printing company at the time. And I think I put them in touch with him and they literally went live and were screen printing these T-shirts there. And then I ended up going down to the archive in Somerset. We worked on, me and a few of the companies, like kind of local businesses, one from Sheffield, one from Accrington, one from Newcastle. And they all like did different skills. So like Tricket made socks, Mamnick made crepe cleaner. Is it crepe? The sole, is it crepe or crepe? Uh, anyway. One's a food and one's a slang term for shoe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's the shoe one. Yeah, <laughs> It's like a crepe cleaner. And another guy made a box and it was for the 65th anniversary of the Clark's Desert Boot. And it was like really nice display case and everything. I did like an illustrated card that went in there and it was limited edition. And I think it mainly got sold in Japan, but they, they were quite expensive. They were like 250, 300 quid. But we got there, we all got to go down to the Clark's archive and look around and stuff like that and got put up in 
there's like a hotel across the street from the clerk's office that's like it's really old and cool and we got to stay in there and stuff like that and you just got like get treated really nicely <laughs> clients Adidas always treat me nicely all my German friends they always treat me nicely it's one of perks at job the Wagner revolution thing that was basically I was with my friend in the studio and I was quiet for a few days you know all this hype around town Wagner was bringing in all these loan like loan signings like Casey Palmer and Izzy Brown and Aaron Moy yeah Aaron Moy specifically, yeah. if it weren't for him, I don't think we'd have done anything. It was just like exciting and we were getting results and being a Huddersfield fan, especially my generation, we'd, you'd never seen like this kind of level. <laughs> my generation as well. People too. doing step overs <laughs> and back heels, imagine. And, Cruyff um, turns. <laughs> Cruyff turns. Rabonis. It was something you'd, you'd never seen before in like you had someone like Aaron Moy who was on loan from City at the time and he was just a phenomenal player mm. and kind of the glue in the middle best player I've ever seen exactly me too miles. so it was yeah. like there was a buzz in town about it and I'd seen that a few people had started doing like a hashtag like the, the Wagner revolution I just had a thing in my head I thought I want to do a personal project for a few days I ain't got a job until Wednesday or whatever it's Monday now so I just had this idea of doing like David Wagner and some like some of the players that he'd signed, like Heffele, Schindler, Love, and I can't remember who the other one was. I just thought I'd do some drawings of him in like a Russian Revolution <laughs> propaganda style artwork and call it the Wagner Revolution. And instead of it being like red cream and black, it would be blue cream and black. And I'd said to my mate Charlie, I said to him, watch this now. I'm going to do this artwork and I bet I'll be working with a club by next week that's confidence <laughs> it is but it was kind of half joking anyway i did it and it went down on twitter really well and i was with sean jarvis on thursday posing for the local newspaper <laughs> and they'd put the artwork on a clap banner for the rotherham game on the following tuesday and i've been working with them ever since <laughs> <laughs> so random like i love it when a plan comes together but i could not have looked cooler mm. to probably to charlie you became a celeb town fan after that didn't you yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm not Reese Dinsdale level. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, you're getting there. Not Patrick Stewart level, yeah. but hopefully like in 80 years, I'll be Patrick Stewart level, yeah. or Sir Patrick. Sir Patrick, we should say. Sir How Patrick. dare I? Yeah. The design you made ended up on Clappers, didn't they, for a few games, and one picture ended up on the BBC Sport website. How big a moment was that for you? Did it feel like you spoke that idea into existence, basically? It was weird. It wasn't the first time that I've spoken an idea into existence. In my head, I've spoke my job into existence. So, yeah, I mean, the BBC thing, by that point, I mean, it was pretty cool. I'd done some pretty high-profile jobs by that point. So being on the BBC is cool and everything. It wasn't exactly groundbreaking. Sound like a right idea. But <laughs> at that point in my career, you know, I'd, I'd done quite a lot of stuff. So... I always save it. I always like, I've got like a digital archive and anything like that comes along, I'll always save it because and the thing is like, people tell me stuff, oh, your dad did this when he was younger, he did that. But there's no proof. There's no photos. There's no this, that or the other. No, you so when, I, when I say to my kids, I did this, I'm like, oh yeah, whatever. And I, I can just get it out of the archive. It's like, bang, there you go, proof. For the final, when we went up into the premiership, I was on the big screen doing an interview. Uh, Were you? For, I must have missed that. Don't worry, I've got a photo in my archive. <laughs> it's because one of my clients, they were doing like build up for Skybet. So 
they came and filmed us, I think it was before the Sheffield Wednesday game. I actually sourced the other lads who got interviewed on the film as well. Came down to the stadium, we got interviewed on that. And then all of a sudden you're down at Wembley and you're on like massive, massive screen. So it's stuff like that. Like I say to your kids, I was on screen at Wembley once. And like, no, you won't. You can't prove it. And I'm like, uh, I can actually. <laughs> in my archive. Yeah. So can I reflect on this journey now as a final question? So what has it taught you about yourself, do you think, in the time you've been doing it? That I'm pretty driven. <laughs> <laughs> like sometimes if I, if I want to do something, I will go full throttle at it. I'm quite obsessive. To be honest, I found, which sometimes it's good when it's a good thing, it probably won't be good if it was heroin. But I think if it's used in the right way, no, I take that back. I don't think obsession's a great thing. I think too much of anything can make you an addict. So whether that's a workaholic, I think you need to manage it. But I think I've learned that I am quite obsessive over stuff. To get my own way and to get what I want, I will literally murder you <laughs> you know i'll put the work in i've learned that i could be really focused and i've also learned that the older i get the more i need to not be that crazy about it you need to kind of take a step back and put focus into other things in life like your kids and i don't want to be at work all night i'd rather finish an hour early and go play football with my kids for an hour you know and i think just learning how to balance that that happens as you get older so yeah i've basically learned that i'm obsessed with stuff <laughs> i also learned that hard work if you put the effort in you you get results you reap what you sow that's definitely something i'm going to instill in my children it's like don't expect anything to come to you overnight i mean i never had that attitude to start with i just thought it was going to take a, a lot more nights to come to me than it did but yeah i just think i've learned how to manage stuff better <laughs> We've talked about Pete, the illustrator and designer. I want to go a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey now, mate. So firstly, I ask all my special guests this question. Can you tell me about your early life, teenage years, and whether looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Pete we meet here? I haven't really got anything bad to say about my childhood. I had a great childhood. My parents are still together, so I didn't come from a broken home. I had a brother, so I want like a, an only child. I had a great upbringing. We weren't millionaires, but we weren't poor, poor, you know. We got to go on holiday and stuff. A lot of family in Ireland, so we went to Ireland a lot. And then, like, when we were a bit older, we, you know, we went on holidays to, like, Tenerife and stuff like that. So my parents were always very supportive. Always got us going out playing sports and stuff. So, like, from, like, a mental health point of view, I had no real massive traumas in my youth. No one close died when I was young or anything like that so I guess I'm a bit boring when it no, comes it was to, great. Uh, to that. <laughs> it's a great answer. Can I quickly talk to you about design again because when it comes to burnout you said to me off air that you were going 210% into design and you had a ton of motivation to not stop until that idea of success was achieved. Going flat out as you did, though, it did mean sort of working in the studio, like you said, late at night, sleeping in the studio sometimes. You also started overeating and not exercising and overeating in quite a big way because you put on five stone. <laughs> yeah. Would that be deemed, I guess, well, it probably would be, but would, did you view it at the time as self-harm and would you classify it as that looking back? 
No, because it, it happened over the course of years. I, I don't think it was just the design either. I think I was very active at school. I played for the school football team, basketball team, played Sunday league, played football a lot. I was very active, did like 100 metres in 13 seconds, which Whoa. is all right, you know. Get you. <laughs> Get, Get you me, in 13 yeah, seconds. Yeah. I think just like when I left high school and I decided, I literally, we basically, my school team got to the school cup final or something and it was played down at the stadium actually. And I remember like that just before we got through that tournament, I remember saying to my teacher that I wanted to focus on my studies because I really wanted to get into college and get my grades because I, I have everything planned out. And if, if that didn't happen, then God knows what I'd have done. done. So I kind of just stepped back from the football and we ended up, I think it was Rastrick we played in the final. Oh, Royds Hall and Cameron Jerome was playing for the other team before he went pro. He's got a hat trick and we lost anyway. But uh, after that, I discovered drinking and I didn't do sport as much. And then we drinking comes eating takeaways and everything else and just enjoying yourself. And it was probably fine until I was like 21, 22. But then I was sat. Your metabolism stops working. Yeah, as yeah I didn't. No one told me about that. Yeah. No one told me about that. <laughs> That's the biggest shock when you yeah, can't just eat your fish and chips and a Burger King and a Mackey D's and then not put on any weight when you're 14. Exactly. exactly. And I'm sat down like all day and all night drawing, trying to get to where I've got to get to. And then it's like 10 years goes by and you've gained five stone. And it's like, I need to do something about this. But I see that almost as like a, a sacrifice of me getting where I got as quick as I got. Because like I said earlier on, I'm obsessed about stuff and I was obsessed about getting to where I wanted to be regardless of other areas of my life. And yeah, maybe I didn't do enough exercise and maybe I did eat too much. And maybe when I went drinking, because I was working so hard, I was playing hard as well. Mm. But I never saw it as self-harm. I didn't even know it was happening. <laughs> it is, you only know, like, when you, like literally like when you look back 10 years ago to what you look like, to what you look like now, it's like, yeah, something happened, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you ended up dropping five stone in about four months, which is a pretty big achievement. And you also yeah. quit smoking as well in your adult life. So how has those two things helped you in the short term in your wallet and your long-term physical and mental health? I did. I mean, I'm, I'm tight, me, money-wise. And the, the, straw that, thing. <laughs> the straw that brought the camel's back was we were getting life insurance because I'm old and I need life insurance. I got a quote and then I was going to have to pay £5 extra a month because of my weight-height ratio. And I, I just said to to my financial advisor, I said, hold my beer. And then basically, <laughs> I just Just a puff of smoke where, yeah, where just, you were. <laughs> yeah, it's like stars in their eyes. I basically went, I think the next day I started running and I went at like six o'clock in the morning because I knew that I'd be blowing out my ass and I didn't want people to see me. And I thought, well, no one's going to be seeing me at six o'clock in the morning. And then, you know, I just, I couldn't even run a mile and then just keep doing it and keep doing it. And also I changed my diet as well. Stopped drinking for six months. Stopped smoking prior to that as well. Again, obsession. I just went, I probably went too far with the running. I don't think looking back, it's healthy to drop five stone in four months. I was looking a bit gaunt at, at one point, but I got to where I wanted to be and I've kept it off ever since i'm not as hardcore as what i was i'm not like running four or five times a week because i don't need to i'm still pretty strict on the diet but i'm not gonna like suffer like if i want some i'll have it you know if i want a chocolate bar i'll have it i just don't eat 10 chocolate bars a day can i talk about the addictive personality because you mentioned it a little bit already and 
when we spoke off air, setting goals seems to be a big counterweight to that. So can you explain what addictive personality is for the listeners who don't know? And then how does goal setting help you channel that side of your personality and, and stop it going out of control, basically? Well, I don't know about addictive personality. No one's ever said I've got addictive personality. It's okay, so just, it's undiagnosed, right, okay. Well, I'm, I'm not even diagnosing myself. I oh, just think right. <laughs> I get obsessed with certain stuff, whether that is addictive personality, I'm not sure. I don't know about addictive personality, really, but I know that I get obsessed about stuff. And when I'm obsessed about it, that, that is everything that's in my life at that point until I get to where I want to go with it. Well, that's a symptom so, well, of OCD, the... but maybe it's not. Maybe it's yeah, not. That. Maybe, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Like, I've never. I mean, setting goals is just something I learned to do. I don't know how I learned. I don't know where it came up with, but it's all these little goals. I think, especially with running, it helps because it's like, well, the first goal is just being able to run a mile. Once you can run a mile, then set another goal, run two miles, you know. And it's the same with work. It's like, right, well, you need to earn this much this month or you need to get X amount of new clients this month. And then you just keep building up and building up. But it, you can't just get a goal and then not do anything. You've got to set the, the next goal as well. For anyone who's struggling with focus and stuff, I'd definitely say setting goals is like one of the best things you can do. And just don't make the goals unachievable. It's like, you can't just say, right, I'm starting from scratch and in a year I want to be a millionaire. It's never going to happen and you're never going to do it unless you're very, very lucky. It's got to be achievable. It is literally like, right, run one mile. If you could run a mile in the next six months and you've achieved your goal and then set a new goal. The year before the first COVID-19 lockdown, Pete, you said to me that you had what you called an early midlife crisis. Yeah. Where did those feelings come from? Who's the Pete we meet here and, and how did that affect your mental health? Yeah, it was a bit of a weird one, really, because I've always felt I was quite headstrong, probably to the point where it is quite detrimental. It's like, don't cry, you look like a girl, like all that stuff that everyone's warning against now. I always struggled kind of showing emotions. I always felt like I had to have a, a face on that was public facing that was always stern and always like strong and the captain of the ship type thing. I can only put it down to like having maybe doing 10 years of this constant pressure without even realizing it's pressure. You know, like we just talked about like running the business, then having kids. And there was a lot going on at that point, actually. I was talking about with my friend the other day, there's the stress, like everyone always says, like stress of buying and selling houses is like the worst stress when you're moving house and stuff like that. And so I kind of, thought it'd be a bit stressful but actually going through it and then we ended up having to completely gut our new house and spend all this money doing it up and the kids were just at an age where really needy and stuff like that and it, I think it was just like a, a massive combination of stuff plus business and having well you always have money worries but you never know when the next paycheck's coming in and then you've still got all this money going out and I don't know, I think I had a bit of a crack, to be honest. And I felt like I just wanted to get away from it all and just kind of <laughs> just run, mm. run for the hills. I just think it was something to do with all that combination of stuff happening at that point in my life that I kind of doubted myself a bit and thought, have I made the right decision here? You know, it's probably too late when you're 34 to kind of... <laughs> To say that when you know you're married, you've got kids, you've got mortgage, it's a bit too late to say, should I have done that? But it was just kind of like a moment of self-doubt. And I, 
I wouldn't say it's like a traditional midlife crisis. I wouldn't say it's like going out and buying a sports car because you're in. That's the stereotype, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that. I just think it was more like a midlife panic. Yeah. Interesting. Do you think any of it came from a self-doubt that you had achieved? So there was almost maybe like an emptiness because you had achieved all of these goals despite the pressure. Or was it a fear that you maybe had no more goals left to set? Yeah, maybe, maybe a combination of both. I definitely think there was so much going on that I probably forgot to set myself some more goals, to be honest, because it, it was just a bit mental. Like it was coming at me from all angles at the point as well where we got in the house. We moved back in at my parents' house, the family, just while we were, the other house was uninhabitable at that point. We were having to rip up floorboards and put boilers in and everything. So we lived there for six months. And then my brother, basically, he did the same with his family. So there was like 12 people in a three-bedroom house. <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't as bad as what you think, actually, because everyone was out working or at school and stuff. So it was very rare everyone was in there at the same time. But it was Me just still. Like, yeah, you take away the personal space. I had no personal space for six months. Mm. I think that had an effect as well. And basically, it culminated in me saying, right, I need to figure out what's up with me. So I talked to mates and stuff, and I think sometimes mates basically speak in your best interests, you know. Like, yeah, and they can speak in platitudes most of the time because they don't yeah, have the yeah. communication skills to give you what you need. Yeah, and I, I'm always I always talk to my really close mates, and I you know I don't really keep anything in from them. I'll always talk to my wife about stuff as well, but I just wanted an outsider's opinion on stuff. So I booked into some therapy sessions, kind of to see what it was about. And, you know, the whole culture at the moment, everyone's saying, oh, you should always talk. And uh, If talk you want to, stuff. I would caveat that by saying. <laughs> yeah, if you want yeah. to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you don't have to talk. It shouldn't be a pressure for sure. No, no, it shouldn't be a pressure. But I just saw it like it was just cropping up everywhere at that point. And I thought, you know what, I might, I might actually just see this and see if it helps. So I kind of booked into therapist a local therapist to kind of like maybe get some clarity and get an outsider's perspective on things i maybe did four or five sessions i think once every i think it was once a week or once every two weeks or something like that that was kind of what it eventually ended up being is from all this going on and me kind of feeling a bit i don't know different like i hadn't mm. felt like that before so i just thought well now's the time maybe to to talk to someone about it and yeah I ended up going to therapy for it yeah you felt very stigmatized about going to therapy Pete when we spoke off air yeah, the only definitely. people you told about it was your mum your wife and then your business partner of course yeah. no one should feel pressured or forced to disclose about their mental health but why did you feel ashamed of it do you think you know part of that stigma comes from the fact that I guess from a very base level, a lot of people might think that because you're accessing therapy, they might think you are in an extreme crisis mode. So if you disclose that, people will think you're suicidal or maybe in a similar state of distress. Yeah, I think it's a lot of things. I think it, it, it also is part of what I think I've been brought up to see what therapy is as well. In my head, oh yeah you go into the nut house or whatever it's not right it's not right at all and I don't want anyone to think that I was suicidal or like on the verge of doing something because I wasn't I, you know I wasn't it's was just different for me and I, I want you know I wasn't crisis point or anything like that 
but I, I felt like I needed to talk to someone who I didn't know about stuff just to get an outsider's perspective. But yeah, the stigma was like, I didn't want people to know. And it's, it's a weird feeling really. Like I told my mom and I told my wife and I told, yeah, my business partner as well. Cause I would just disappear. Like, <laughs> yeah. so, like, you need to know easy, something. <laughs> it's easy just to tell you. And I've told people since, obviously I'm telling however many listeners you've got now that I've done it, but it's just at the time I just kind of wanted to keep it under wraps. I wanted yeah. to feel, I wanted to scope it out for myself, mm. basically. You want to have a certain level of privacy yeah, too. And I'm quite a private person as well. I'm not one of these guys who, and I, there's nothing against these people who like spill out their life on Facebook and stuff like that. That's that might, their that might way, be me, but I've only that's written. The, it's their way of dealing with it. You know, like I'm not that guy and I've got nothing against people who are, but mm. I'm quite a private person when it comes to this kind of stuff. So there was a stigma and I did think, oh, will people think less of me? Will they think I'm cracking up? But I just think that's the way my generation was brought up anyway. They were never anything like that in the 90s. I'll go talk to Not even noughties, mate, for me. Well, not even noughties as well, yeah. Like, obviously, I was there again and it's only the last three or four years that people have started saying it. So obviously just the way I've been brought up, I'm going to like err on the side of caution and kind of keep it a bit quieter. But now that I've done it and that's sorted, I don't have any qualms about telling people about it. So when you did tell people, what was that reaction like? Did it remove some of the internalized stigma you felt? Definitely, because I only got positive feedback. I got people saying, I'm proud of you for doing it. Proud of you for realizing that you needed to do it. Did that shock you? It totally, yeah. It totally shocks me. Like why, said, did, why did it shock you? I don't know. I just didn't think I'd get praised for for going to the therapist. It's <laughs> <laughs> as daft as that sounds. It, it wasn't what I, I don't know what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting that. And it kind of gave me confidence then to, I think that'll probably give me confidence to kind of refer other people. I did actually refer a friend who was struggling to my therapist as well. And I said, look, I've gone. And do you know what? I'd recommend it if you need to talk to someone. He were very, not the same business as me, but he runs his own business, got pressures, very similar situation, got mortgage, kids, whatever. And he was struggling a bit. And just privately, we had a bit of a chat and I sent him my therapist's number. Uh, Whether or not he took that up, I'm not sure. I haven't talked to him about it since. He seems to be doing all right. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd recommend it for people. And if anyone like my friend wanted my therapist number or a recommendation, I'd always pass that on. Can we talk about fatherhood before we finish this part of your journey, Pete, as we spoke off air about your desire to teach your kids about mental health at the right age and the appropriate age and the appropriate time without making them over pathologize. And that's a real worry I have actually for the kids growing up because we've had so much education and awareness on mental health that there is a slight danger of it going the other way. Whereas we were in a generation where there was no education and no awareness. And now there might be too much. I don't know. I don't know if that's a kind of taboo thing to say, but do you think at the age they are right now, it's more about how to express and manage emotions and, you know, what's the right thing to cry about? What's the wrong thing to cry about? You can't cry when you don't get your own way, stuff like that, rather than bombard them say with info about eating disorders or schizophrenia yeah it's 100 percent that there's a difference between having a mental health crisis and wanting your own way especially when it comes to kids and it's just very delicate for a parent to kind of then say well which is which 
is he or she crying because she wants something or is he or she crying? Are they hiding something else underneath it? And I'm not saying like my kids are four and six and I'm not saying that four and six year olds don't have mental health issues. I'm hundred percent sure some kids who are four and six who have had horrible, horrible upbringings will definitely have mental health issues. If not now in the future, mm. but I think it's got to be more with my kids personally. I think it's got to be more maybe now, maybe getting to the point now because they're at school, they've got mates and things like that. And then as they get older and older, having to deal with different situations and different characters at school, then there's all the online stuff that we never really had as yeah. kids growing up. And it's terrifying, frightening to mm. be honest. But yeah, at this point now, it's just, at their ages, it's just managing. I always try and talk to my kids even if it's what did you do at school and they just say nothing <laughs> and I'm like it's like talking to a brick wall half at times so not that I'm not gonna I'm gonna stop I always ask about the day and sometimes I'll bribe them I'll say if you tell me what you did today then I'll give you some sweets you know what I mean so mm. I'll, I'll kind of force it out of them yeah um, do you think it's maybe a case of you know letting them know it's okay to feel sad for a certain time if something bad happens and then how do you kind of come out of that? And how does being sad and something bad happen to you make you stronger rather than weaker? Yeah, yeah it's hard. It's hard, really, because you can't really explain that to a, a kid unless they've actually gone through it. Exactly. And yeah. So choosing the right times. Yeah. Yeah. My yeah. kids haven't really gone through anything that's that shocking to them that I can sit down and say, right, this is how you deal with this. Mm. If I just sat them down and started talking about stuff like that, they'll just be like blank faces that just run off. So I, I guess it's just as and when it happens, me and my wife are going to have to deal with it that way. But she's very aware of it all as well. And we have two boys, so I understand that boys definitely feel like they can't talk about stuff as much. Yeah, because they're conditioned um, to. I, 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 guess, I yeah. could always talk to my mum. Like my mum was the person I talked to when I was growing up. And if the boys end up wanting to talk to their mum, that's fine as well. I want them to be able to talk to me, but I'm not going to force them to talk to yeah. me. But we'll definitely be ironing out any problems as we go along and mm. we won't be kind of sweeping stuff under the rug. That's yeah. my, in my head anyway. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like we're yeah. completely different. When it comes to your sons in particular, mate, we all want our sons to grow up, you know, healthy, compassionate, resilient men. We certainly don't want them exhibiting toxic behaviours. And I always say that I think toxic masculinity is perhaps an overused phrase in a lot of circles, but it does exist in some capacity. But I think if you nip it in the bud in school, then you can basically stop it happening in adult life. However, how do we teach them and guide them so they don't fall into toxic behaviours, whilst also not reinforcing this idea that masculinity is inherently toxic? Because I think there is a danger if you're not educated about the conversation, if they're seeing that word quite a lot, and they might think, oh, should I feel bad for being a man, essentially? Yeah, it's a weird one. It's definitely a weird one. I don't, I don't really know how to answer it. I don't know. It's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah. It's really it's a tough hard. question. It's, yeah. it's one of these that's kind of like... It's a buzzword, I feel I, like. I, it's I, can't give, yeah, yeah. I can't give you an answer until it happens and I have to kind of go through it and talk it out with them. But yeah, you're right. I don't think there's anything wrong with being masculine. And I don't think people have to talk about everything if they don't want 100%, it. One hundred percent. Yeah. I just think that just talk a bit more, maybe. You mm. know, if you fancy it, especially if you've got, you know, suicidal thoughts or you feel under pressure. My mum always said to me, like, a problem shared is a problem halved, and that's always stuck with me since I was a kid. And I think a lot of people they've tried find a 
permanent solution to a temporary problem, unfortunately. And a lot of that is suicide. I think stuff's going to get better, isn't it? It always will get better. As rough as it is now, as rough as you're feeling now, it's like rain clouds, they come and go. There's always going to be sun at some point and then there'll always be rain again. That's just kind of life. Obviously, some people's problems are bigger than other people's problems. But if we can kind of instill in our children the talking thing without forcing the issue, it's a very delicate, fine line. And it'd be great if we can do it. But how to do it, I, I have no answer. Yeah, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? I yeah. want to reflect on your journey now, Pete. So what has it taught you about yourself? And if you could go back to the 21-year-old Pete who was working in that toxic gardening job or the 22-year-old, 23-year-old Pete who was putting on loads of weight and working till the late hours or maybe the 34-year-old Pete who was having the early midlife panic, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Ride the storm. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't know. Well, definitely to the 34-year-old Pete, I'd say just ride it out. It's going to be all right. It's fine. The other Pete, I wouldn't send out to him because I think he was young and he had that fire. And I think you have to use that while you've got it. I can't say I have the same fire anymore, not because I don't enjoy my job, just because almost the honeymoon period's over and nothing stays the same forever. And it's more about management now and strategy. It's not about working till four o'clock in the morning for no. You paid your dues, yeah. Exactly. I've cut my teeth now, so it's a different phase when it comes to work. I wouldn't change anything about how I got here because I enjoyed every minute of it. It's just the panic bit at the end that's probably need to change. <laughs> probably just don't have kids and buy a house. You have to gut your house and run a business all at the same time. Break it up a bit, stagger it. You'll be fine. (laughs) We've come to the final topic of conversation, Pete, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time, which is a general natter and chat about mental health. So first of all, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Good. Very good right today and the last maybe four days. Excellent. Feeling fresh. Great stuff, man. What age do you think you were when you first realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and you became self-aware of your mental health and the feelings you were having were actually in your mind? Probably late on, probably about 30. Okay. Something like that. Was there a specific moment? No, I just think some stuff just comes with age. (laughs) I just think it was just a light bulb moment at that point. Okay. When you had that first conversation about your mental health with someone, who was it with? Did you feel like a part of you had changed or a big burden had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it feel like something quite insignificant and normalised to do? Probably my wife. And it felt good. Again, going back to what my mum said, a problem shared is a problem halved. And it is. I just felt like she probably wasn't really prepared or didn't really know... I didn't even know really what was going on in my head, so I couldn't expect anyone else to know, but it was still good to talk, which is then why I wanted to go to a professional and someone who doesn't know me to kind of do it properly. You know, I don't want to put burdens on people because I know not everyone is... I'm happy to talk to anyone about the problems. I, I like to think I'm a good listener, but I'm not saying my wife's not, by the way. I'm just saying that some people 
They're not no, they don't have the skills. Yeah, they don't have the skills. They're not that way inclined. They don't have the confidence. And sometimes you need to go to a professional. And it's trial and error as well, basically. Sometimes you you think you're going to find the right person and you're like, oh, actually, they're a great person. I value them as a friend, but they're just not someone I can talk to about my mental health. (laughs) Yeah, and that's fine. So, yeah, probably my wife, I think. Okay, brilliant. Well, um, she's got a shout out here, so I'm glad she she will listen to this part of the pod, at least if she gets this far. (laughs) She's called Kazaya, so I'm not sure if she'll listen. She might do. She's probably (laughs) sick of my voice as it is. (laughs) What triggers do you have that affect your mental health, Pete? So this might be, as we've discussed, maybe kind of pressure or work, or it could be a sound, it could be a social environment, it could be a sensation, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I haven't really figured all of them out. It can be a different thing for a different day. On a bad day, it might be a negative comment. might be a snide remark somewhere. might be money problems or this person owes me money and I have to chase them up or I need to pay this bill or an unexpected cost that's coming <laughs> from somewhere. But a couple of them recently. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's little things like that. And, and some days them things will come and you're absolutely fine and some days they'll come and you're just not on your game and kind of affects you more than what it would normally. What tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health then or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked for you and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Exercise is a good one. Well, it's got to be the best one. I play a lot of football. I did three years of Thai boxing. You haven't got time for mental health after that. You just need to breathe and try and figure out <laughs> where your head re- is. Prepare never your mind. body from constant Yeah, never bruising. mind the problems in your head. I've never been so wrecked physically in my life. Eating a good diet always helps. Lots of vegetables, lots of fresh stuff, not processed stuff, because you're not putting good things in your body, and I don't think that's going to help you your mental health because you feel sluggish you feel guilty don't you yeah talking going out and socializing obviously it's been hard to do in the last couple of years but it's kind of getting back on track now for how long we don't know but talking to people like just socializing talking to people yeah. don't even have to be about problems just seeing people i'm always like meeting up with my mates for coffee i might not see them every day but we have a good catch up and it's just good to talk in general about life you know we've already talked about toxic masculinity Pete so I want to talk a little bit about positive masculinity here which I try and talk with all the men that I have on the podcast so how would you define it and what qualities should a man have to exude to be positively masculine or do you think we just need to redefine or re-emphasize what masculinity is I don't know what is positive masculinity so some guests have said it can be self-confidence self-awareness it can be supporting other men in their lives with their mental health, not being judgmental, uh, resilience, qualities like that. But there's I no right or wrong answer here. Yeah, I just I think that's just qualities of being a decent person. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, I think like none of that's going to harm. I don't know if it's just masculine or not. I just think that's just being a decent person, and and I think it can't harm anyone to be trying better themselves in a nice way and for the community and for everyone else. I always try to be nice to people unless they're obviously trying to pull the wool over my eyes and stuff. Yeah, all of the above, really. I don't really have an answer to that one. Okay, that's fine. There's no right or wrong answer to that for sure. What is the best book or, as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Hmm, put me on spot there. (laughs) I'll tell you what, we're a good one. The Lost Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And it's come up a few that. times. I'm not a self-help guy. I read a lot, like a hell of a lot. And I read everything. 
and every now and again I'll throw in a self-help book and 99% of them I'm just like these are awful <laughs> but that was one that I was actually laughing out loud going through it and it really resonated with me and he did a book after that as well which I can't remember what it is and it's called The Subtle Art not The Lost Art The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F the second one uh, I can't remember what that was called but that was decent as well I don't think it was as good as the first one but very, very good. I'd recommend them okay. Them two books to anyone. I'll add it to the 90 plus books I've got on my saved items list to buy. <laughs> As a final question, Pete, and again, there's no right or wrong answer to this either. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? I think more of the same, really, because from what I've seen with things popping up and a lot of big companies and people getting on I'd say the bandwagon but I don't want to use it in a negative term it can be a bandwagon sometimes mate <laughs> if people yeah. working this space for, for four oh, or five definitely. years I can see that for sure definitely but at the same time if it's getting to three million more people than what it would then I, I don't really want to say it in a negative term but if it weren't for me seeing it about I might not have gone to therapy I might not have talked about it so I just think it can't be a fad it can't be like, oh, something else will come up in like three months and everyone will forget about mental health. I think it needs to be a constant from now until forever. Yeah, um, this is why I have maybe, some maybe criticisms about the uh, awareness weeks and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, maybe not too much in your face, but more of a like a, a low-level constant hunt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just make it part of the curriculum of life and then like hopefully it'll stay this way like moving forward whether or not it will i'm I'm a bit dubious i don't know mm. well that's a great policy to end on so pete o'toole thank you so much for coming on the just check-in podcast mate no problem my pleasure thank you for having me Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big, massive thank you to Pete for being my special guest on this episode and for checking in with me. I'll put some links to where you can follow Pete on social media and check out all of his work on his website. As always, I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you like what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your work colleagues about it. Spread the good news and the work we're doing here at Vent and the podcast. If you want to support us further, please consider giving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That will really help us with those algorithms and spread the word about the podcast to more people. If you want to do even more, you can support our Patreon. That's by going to www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you just want to make a one-off donation, that's absolutely fine. You can also go to our GoFundMe. The GoFundMe link is in all our channels and on our website. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it's always okay to vent. Bye.